All right, we're good to go. Well, thank you everybody for uh, for coming in. We got two more, two more to go. We're all done. Uh, so today we're going to cover. Uh, we're going to zoom in and look at the city of Hebron as a microcosm for uh, this particular conflict. And then next week, um, I believe we'll. My grandmother will say a few words about the family journey, and we'll do Q&A to kind of wrap up. Uh, Next week, I'm also going to pass around a sign-up sheet for those who are interested to include your name and your email. Um, We're hoping to try and take a tour to look at this, both the biblical sites, but also focus a lot on this particular conflict and speak to people who were involved in this. Hoping to do that maybe in 2018, maybe 2019. So we'll pass around a sign-up sheet for those who wish to stay informed about that trip. If you'd like to come with the McRae's on that trip, we would love to have you. So I'll pass it around next time. So um, today, let's zoom in on the city of Hebron. Um, before we do, if this is going to work, well, I'm going to have to plug it in first, so, and then it'll work. In just a second. There it is. Okay, just to remind you about some of the issues of closure uh, and separation, run back through these maps uh, very quickly. Uh, we have the Green Line border, we've talked about so many times, hopefully we all know what that is, um, and a series of checkpoints that divide up the West Bank and prohibit and restrict mobility, free mobility of Palestinians throughout the West Bank. Um, there are other barriers such as earth mounds, which you're seeing popping up here, um, things like road gates as well, I think that may be the last, no, and roadblocks, trenches and earth mounds, is that it, road barriers. Okay, so we'll go back there. So you can just see then kind of a series of, uh, and this, is, this map's from 2013 or so, so it's, it's even more extensive, the kind of labyrinth of, uh, of obstacles to Palestinian mobility that now exists throughout the West Bank. Also to remind you of this map here, I'm just going to jump to the end of this so you can see the fragmentation of the West Bank. Let me jump here to the end. Oh, there it was. So you can see that even though Palestinians are supposed to have uh, the West Bank, Um, They, in fact, have very little of it because um, everything you see in gray is under Israel's control. You see in black the the path of the separation barrier, the wall and the fence that that kind of goes into the West Bank and pulls some of the major settlements, which are in these areas here, brings them back onto the Israeli side. So you're seeing kind of on a macro level the separation uh, and divisions that exist throughout the West Bank. And uh, in a minute, we're going to zoom in and look at what that looks like in one particular city. Um, But to give you just a sense, we've talked about checkpoints, and I don't know if you all have a good sense of what a checkpoint would be like. Has anyone ever, how many have been through like the Bethlehem checkpoint? Uh, There are a few of us? Okay. Yeah. So you've you've actually walked through it. For those who haven't, I want to give you a little bit of sense of what this is like. Um, It's trying to log me onto the internet. I don't want the internet. Thank you, though. It's very sweet. so th- this is, these are a couple of pictures I took of the Bethlehem checkpoint. Um, this is the wall here. On the other side is, is um, the Israeli side of, uh, of the fence, or of the wall. We're on the Palestinian side. So in order to get up through here and cross through the wall, you have to walk through this cage, essentially. Uh, and so every morning, Palestinian men who are going to try and work on the Israeli side to take their jobs in Jerusalem, wherever they might be, have to wait for hours often through... Uh, walking through this cage and then when they get through to the actual checkpoint you can see it's just it's absolutely packed uh my brother was going through this once um and talked about how uh there it got to be so kind of contested in there and so uh crowded 
people really began to shove and push, and eventually he saw an older woman, he thought she was probably in her 70s or 80s, crawling between his legs trying to get up front. I mean, it was that kind of a humiliating atmosphere, and it was sort of the same thing that happens in prison, which is if you build a cage and put people in it, you'll, you'll turn people into kind of an almost animalistic way of, uh, of being around each other. You build a cage and you create animals. That's what ends up happening. Um, and so I wanted to read you this. Uh, when I was overseas in the, uh, in the fall, actually a year ago, um, I went through this checkpoint at Bethlehem and I wrote this Instagram uh, story about it and I thought I would just read it to you all real quick and then show you that after, uh, after they go through this, uh, what they end up seeing on the other side of this. Um, so the story was yelling. That's all I could hear as I passed through the humiliating Bethlehem checkpoint to Jerusalem. My blue U.S. passport spared me the harassment. Their green Palestinian IDs did not. After a long wait in a zigzagging line, I finally reached the metal detector where an angry young Israeli soldier shouted orders behind a bulletproof glass container. An old man was next to me wearing traditional Arabic headdress and, or dress and head covering. I removed my medal, as did he, but he was not allowed to continue until he removed his headdress, ensuring he was without explosives. His eyes were sad and his head was shaking. When I arrived to the final check, another soldier examined the green IDs and permission papers, allowing some through and turning others away. A child wept next to me as he learned he would not be allowed to go to Jerusalem. Each Palestinian in line before me placed their fingers on a scanner. The soldier searched their fingerprints in his computer, then he waved them forward or back. When he waved me through, I saw each of the posters pictured above, which I'll show you in a second, welcoming me to Israel, the roots of peace. Once, I too went to a building to be fingerprinted. I was doing the necessary background check to become a volunteer. Like the checkpoint, this building had concrete walls, steel and razor wire, armed guards, and dull colors. I did not think much of it. After all, it was a prison, and that's what prisons do. So, when you walk through all that, these are the posters that Israel has set up for all Palestinians to see. Tel Aviv, uh, it's the time of your, for the time of your life. Come feel the glory of Israel. Israel, the roots of peace. So after Palestinians go through this long line of waiting for hours, often getting denied for little to no reason, uh, there's a story in here in my book called The Standoff, uh, which is about a checkpoint where an older Palestinian man was trying to go through with his younger son. He was going to pray in Jerusalem. He had written permission from Israel to say he had 24 hours on a Friday to go to Jerusalem to pray. Uh, but the soldier on duty did not care. and She just said, and we literally said that I, I have recorded the whole thing. She said, I don't care that you have a permission. You're not going to go. Go back. And so he sat there and argued with her for a long time and finally said, I want to talk to your superior. Um, so she went, actually got her boss. He came back. Uh, they had a conversation. And then the soldier told the man, OK, you do have permission. You can go. But your son has to go back. Divided the son from his father. So this is what Palestinians go through time and time again. And when they get through, you have this or my personal favorite, Israel, where it's vacation all year round. I mean, we laugh, but that, I mean, it's, it's humiliating, right? To think about every time you have to go to work, you have to pass through that kind of a checkpoint, be, be kind of corralled through like cattle. You don't know if you're going to be allowed through, if you're going to be denied. You don't know if you're going to be allowed through when your children sent back, or your wife sent back, or your husband sent back. You don't know if you're going to have to wait for hours just because they want you to wait, because 
the soldiers on duty happen to want to play on their phones because I have walked through a checkpoint where I've had to wait for at least 30 minutes because the soldiers were all sitting around playing on their phones together and decided not to let anyone through. That stuff happens, and when you walk through it, you get to see Israel where it's vacation all year round. It's that kind of humiliation that Palestinians suffer that we never hear about. That degradation of dignity. Okay, so that's an image of, of what checkpoints are like. Now I want to, it's kind of on a large scale, I want to zoom in now to this city of, of Hebron. So if we're looking at the, at the whole land, right here, here's Jerusalem, right up here in this little kind of enclave, and then you have Hebron just to the south. So we're going to zoom in a little bit more. So you can see Hebron here of the West Bank. Here's Gaza, Bethlehem, Jerusalem. Okay, so now we're going to zoom in even closer on the city of Hebron to look at a map. One of the things that, you know, we talked about how the West Bank is divided into various parts. Um, you have uh, areas A, B, and C. You all remember that conversation? Area A is under full Palestinian control. Area B is divided between Palestinian and Israeli control. And area C is full Israeli control. Well, the only other city, that, well, that happened on a massive scale with the West Bank. In the city of Hebron, they also divided the city itself into Palestinian and Israeli control. Even though it's within the West Bank, it's not on the border, but they, they divided it up into what's called H1 and H2. So this is kind of a, a bigger map of Hebron. Everything you see that's kind of coated in white is H1. That's under Palestinian, the, uh, the authority of the Palestinian Authority. What you see here, uh, all this area, is H2. That's under full Israeli control, under the uh, control of the Israeli military. And the, this up here, these are settlements. What's in purple? Israeli settlements. Okay, so this is, Hebron is the largest Palestinian city. Uh, it has, and the whole greater Hebron, I think there's about 600,000 um, Palestinians living there. Um, and then inside, the, inside H2, you have... Um, a significant, well, a, a decent number of, of Israelis actually living in that part of the city. So we're going to zoom in now on this map to get a little bit closer. What makes Hebron unique is that it is the only place in the West Bank where, uh, other than East Jerusalem, where there are Israeli settlements inside the Palestinian city. For the most part, you have what, uh, in the West Bank what you have here with the settlement of Kiryat Arba, where you have a settlement built up on a hillside around the Palestinian cities and villages, right? They're, uh, they're up on hills, which is a strategic position. Um, and, and so that's kind of where you see them all along these hillsides. Even, um, was it Sharon? I think it was Sharon maybe who said that we have to grab the hilltops while we can. You know, get a hold of them, and that's where they end up building their settlements. Hebron actually has settlements inside the heart of the <coughs> West Bank. So if we're looking now at the old city, this is the H2 area. This is the area that's under Israeli control. But this is the heart of the old city. So if those who have been to Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, Hebron's got one of those too. What you have, though, is you have a series of settlements right in this area. So you have the settlement of Tel Romeda here, settlement of Beit Hadassah, Beit Romano, and Avraham Avinu. And then you have the ones up on the hill. But these are right in the heart of the old city. Avraham Avinu especially is actually in the old city. It's on top of the Palestinian homes. So this is unlike any other place in the West Bank. Okay? Settlements are not just on the hillsides, they're actually inside the city. The reason for that is because of this right here. So this is the Ibrahimi Mosque, also known as the Tomb of the Patriarchs, also known as the Cave of Machpelah. So it's where uh, Abraham, uh, Isaac, is Jacob there as well? Hey, Jacob's there, Leah's there, Rachel I think is up in Bethlehem. Yeah, so it's a series of the, of the patriarchs and matriarchs. Who are, uh, who are buried here. And so it's a very holy site for Jews. 
Um, and it's also a mosque. So they've, what they've done is actually divided the structure and so that half of it's a synagogue and half of it's a mosque. Um, you'll remember, you may remember that before I talked about um, the guy, a guy named Baruch Goldstein, uh, who in 1994 was an American doctor living in Hebron who went into this mosque and opened fire in the early morning hours, killed 27 Palestinians, injured 170 others, I think. He ended up being beaten to death by a fire hydrant, um, fire extinguisher, excuse me. Um, but to this day, the settlers of Hebron make pilgrimage to his grave to pay their respects for his uh, sacrifice for the Jewish people of Hebron to try and kill the Palestinians. Um, so this is, this is one of those places we hear a lot about the extremist Palestinians, Palestinians willing to blow themselves up, Palestinians willing to plant bombs on cars. You know, we, we hear these stories a lot. What we do not hear are the stories of extremist Israeli uh, and, and Jewish settlers. And those folks mostly live in Hebron. Uh, so when I, when I spent the, my time with Christian peacemaker teams, I was in this area. Um, we had an apartment right here in the old city. Uh, and we encountered these settlers on a, on a daily basis. And so I want to I wanna kind of tell you some of the stories and show you of what life is like for Palestinians living among these settlers. So what you have, you have these settlements here, Tel Rameda, Beit Hadassah, Beit Ramanu, Avraham Avinu, approximately five to 600 settlers live there. Not a tremendous amount, but a decent amount. But you have 2,000 Israeli soldiers who are there to protect them. Okay. So right here, Beit Romano is both a settlement uh, and, a, and the military base. So the military sits right outside of the old city. Um, I should have had another, where'd it go? I have another image. I guess I didn't, okay. I thought I had an image of soldiers for you to show you. Um, let me see if I can find it. I guess I, oh, there it is. I put it in the wrong place. So um, every Saturday, the soldiers lead what's called a settler tour. And they bring settlers from all over the West Bank and people who would like to become settlers, Americans, folks from inside Israel, uh, and they stop all activity in the Palestinian old city and they lead uh, by kind of a, a guarded um, escort, lead all these settlers through the Palestinian area of the old city to show them kind of the Jewish, the historical Jewish presence of Hebron. Because part of the story that Jews will tell is that the Jews used to live in Hebron for a long time. And in 1927, there was a massacre where some of the Arabs living around in that area killed approximately 67 uh, of their fellow Jewish neighbors in Hebron. Often the piece that's left out of the story is that the other 400 were rescued by their Arab neighbors. But that part of the story often gets left out. And so the story is told of the Hebron massacre of 1920, 1929, not 27, 1929. And so what will happen is that settlers uh, will come to Hebron to see the places where Jews used to live inside that old city. To remember that this was a Jewish place and we need to reclaim it. And so it's keeping that story alive. But these uh, soldiers will, will kind of move through with them. Uh, in order to protect them, in order to move Palestinians out of the way. Young Palestinian men are often stopped and frisked, their IDs taken, um, and there's often a lot of harassment and a lot of violence that happens here. So as you walk through the old city, for those who have been to Jerusalem, the old city, you know that the, the walkways are not terribly long, they're, they're um, somewhat narrow, and that a lot of folks kind of have their their shops open up right onto that road and they'll have you know their artifacts and their clothes and all the things that they're selling out on tables you know for people to walk by and look at and so for instance one of the things that happened while I was there was that there was a man that I became really uh, good friends with a guy named Mohammed uh, and he had a sand art shop um, so he I don't know if you guys have ever seen those but he has these glass vases and he he makes beautiful designs out of colored sand 
can draw camels and sunsets and all kinds, write your name through it. It's amazing stuff. It takes quite a while to make those. And so he had his table sitting out on the, on the um, cobblestone street with probably 30 or so of those glass vases uh, out for people to look at. And during one of these settler tours, the soldiers were walking by and one of the young settler kids walked up and took his arm and scraped it across and knocked every single one of those glass vases to the ground, shattered every one of them. Not a single thing happened to that kid. Nobody said anything. And Muhammad just sort of dropped his head and he reached over and grabbed the new one and he started over. He had no recourse, nothing he could do, that that young boy could just destroy all of his work like that and then Muhammad just had to start over. So let me jump back now to show you what the old city looks like. I thought I had these in the correct order, I apologize. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna look um, at this, uh, the, the main pathway through the old city, which comes right through here uh, and comes right up under Avraham Avinu. So what has happened is that this particular Israeli settlement has been built on top of the Palestinian houses. If you're up on one of the uh, rooftops here, you can look and see the difference in the stone. The Israeli settlements have a newer stone. It's very obvious which, which houses are theirs. And so they will be, their houses will be built on top on one side of the pathway and then on the other side of the Palestinian houses and underneath of the Palestinian houses. Um, and so it's, it, they're in very, very close quarters. What has begun to happen, or what's been happening for a while, is that uh, the settlers who live up here have been throwing things from their homes down onto the Palestinians beneath in an effort to try and get them to leave. One actually drilled a hole through their own floor in order to pour acid down on the family beneath to destroy their rugs so that they would eventually leave. So what Palestinians have had to do is they've had to erect fencing in order to protect themselves. So here you can see the, the narrow streetway on this side are Israeli settlements of Avraham Avinu. On this side are Palestinian houses. Underneath are Palestinian shops. And so you can see they have this fencing set up to protect themselves from the barrage from above. I'm zooming in a little bit. You can see some of the trash here. You can see a couple of pieces here, but this has been recently cleaned. But every once in a while, this gets so heavy that it breaks. And so they have to rebuild it because uh, the weight of the garbage is so intense. In fact, one of the people I worked with at CPT said that one year she was here, there was a couch out on this. They had thrown their furniture off of their, uh, out of their home onto the Palisades below. Here are a couple of other images of fencing. Uh, this is me standing on the street looking up and taking these pictures. Uh, and I took all these pictures. These aren't just pulled from some other place off the internet. I took all of these. Here's one I took from above. That's not the street. <laughs> That's the barrier they've put above them to protect the street because they're just throwing stuff down. Uh, there have been reports of, of settlers pouring urine down, uh, beer, acid, bleach, all kinds of stuff, trying to get the Palestinians to leave. This is the, the, uh, a car of one of my friends named Hani. Um, he has, let me see, do I have the map? Let me back up. I'm going to show you the map. Um, he lives right here in Tel Rameda. The pictures I just showed you were, were of uh, this street running right by Avraham Avinu. Uh, Hani has a, a family home that he's had for generations upon generations here in Tel Rameda, right next to the Tel Rameda settlement. And so he has land that the settlers of Tel Rameda have wanted for some time. His olive trees were probably about 800 years old. Uh, he produced, uh, he said he produced around 20 to 30,000 uh, dollars worth of exports per year of his grapes and his olives and his nuts, which is really good for someone living in Hebron. That's a, that's a good amount of money. Uh, but his land has been really uh, fruitful. And so the settlers have, uh, have wanted to, to expand and take it. Uh, 
So one of the tactics that they've used is that they will make homemade napalm and burn his cars. This is the eighth one of his family cars that was destroyed. And it was destroyed while I was there. Um, the other thing that they've done is they've burned all of his trees. And they poisoned his land so it can't grow anything. You imagine that. It's land that you want to expand, and so what do you do? You poison it and burn the trees so that it can't produce anything. What sense does that make? But that's, what, that's what the people of Hebron face every day. This is what they live with. Again, that's the, this is the eighth one of his cars. The eighth one. And he's now lost his source of income because they've poisoned his land and he can't grow his, his grapes and his olives and his, his nuts to be able to export. And so now he's left with how do we continue to, uh, to survive, to have cars, if, we, if they've taken away our source of income as well. But they refuse to leave because if they leave, then, I mean, it's giving the settlers exactly what they're wanting, right? They're wanting to be able to intimidate people out. And so the Palestinians practice what they call samud, which is an Arabic word meaning steadfastness that you just plant your feet firmly in the soil and you refuse to leave. On the front of this car, there was a note that the family wrote that said, we are, because they were holding a protest, they were, they were uh, doing a hunger strike until the media actually paid attention to what had happened. And so they had this sign on their car that said, we are not here to make anyone upset. We are not here to make anyone happy. We are here because we are here. Which I thought was just this beautiful statement of just their right to exist where they are. We're here protesting because we are here. This is... This is who we are, this is where we are, this is our home, and we're not going anywhere. Um, some of the other things that happen are home invasions. Now I want to read you a very short piece from, I'm going to read you two short pieces uh, from, from my book uh, that tie into these pictures. So this is chapter 14 called Home Invasions. This is from February the 8th, 2012. Early this morning, over 20 Israeli soldiers raided and ransacked around 40 houses in Hebron's old city. Soldiers tore through the city, breaking down doors, searching houses, tossing rooms, and physically and verbally harassing the inhabitants who were asleep before the soldiers entered. Soldiers also broke down the door of the Ministry of Labor, which was empty in the early morning hours. My teammates and I visited a family whose home the border police, note that there's border police in the city of Hebron in the middle of the West Bank. Uh, I, we visited the home of uh, someone whose home uh, the border police invaded around 1.30 in the morning, awakening everyone. The soldiers wrote down the names and ID numbers of all eight family members, including two children, before leaving. Then, shortly before 4 a.m., 12 soldiers from the Golani Brigade, which is the brigade trained for war, not a police unit, a war unit, uh, they forced their way into the house and ordered the family, including the two small children, into one room. The soldiers then ransacked the rest of the house, uh, breaking the locks on interior doors and tossing belongings onto the floor. They remained in the house until almost 7 a.m., not allowing the family to use the restroom. The family told us that the soldiers stole money and a child's wristwatch during the raid. Another family showed us their house. The frame bent and the door dented due to the soldiers pounding. You can see from the barrel of the gun. Several door handles must be replaced due to forcible entry with pry bars. Boot prints were still visible on the door and belongings remained scattered around bedrooms. Another organization spoke with a, a family whose toddler daughter has significant trouble breathing due to severe developmental disabilities. Soldiers locked that child in a room alone and forced the family to wait outside in the cold while the soldiers searched the house. In another case, soldiers forced two women who were alone with five children into the street for four hours while they broke all the doors of the house. One man reported that soldiers entered into his home claiming that his children, both under the age of four, had been throwing rocks. 
Soldiers invaded another home, also accusing a man's children of throwing stones, whereupon the man informed them that he, in fact, had no children. <clears throat> right? Completely making up stuff. We're invading your home at two in the morning because your children were throwing stones when he, in fact, has no children. So this stuff happens. I mean, this, this also, I would argue, is terror. Okay? Talking about trying to go to sleep at night, not knowing whether or not in the middle of the night armed soldiers are going to kick in your door, bust through it with their rifles, bust open the locks with pry bars, force your family into different rooms, force them on the street, lock up your, developmentally, your child with developmental disabilities, throw all your belongings around, steal your stuff, all in the middle of the night without warning. That sounds, I would be terrified. Sounds terrifying to me. This is what people in Hebron are dealing with. Here's another story. I showed you these pictures before. I want to read you briefly the story about it. It's, um, I called this chapter the, power of the powers of destruction. Uh, this is January 26, 2012. Their faces looked worn, broken by despair. The mother's eyes, red from weeping, uh, appeared distant. The youngest of the nine children cried aloud, tears running down her dirty cheeks, and her father shouted with exasperation to the heavens, calling on the name of Allah. Eight other, which of course means God. It's not some other God, it just means God. Eight other children sat on the rubble of what used to be their home. Within minutes, Israel had created another homeless Palestinian family. My teammates and I arrived by taxi to Um Khair, which is the name of this uh, village in the south of Hebron Hills. Their home already lay in shambles when we arrived. In 2008, Israel had demolished this family's home, which sits adjacent to the uh, settlement of Carmel. And you can see some of the houses of the settlement right there. Because the family rebuilt their home on the same spot as the original, the demolition squad did not require a new demolition order to re-demolish their home. Uh, in my understanding, I put this as a footnote, under Israeli law, if a demolished house is built 30 meters away from the original spot, you have to get a new order. But because they built it where the house had been, Israel could come back and destroy it without a new demolition order. A crowd gathered around the family, consoling and mourning. The family's belongings lay in piles next to the mounds of broken stone, and my heart broke at the sight. Home demolitions are one of the most devastating practices of the Israeli occupation. As Israel increases the construction of settler housing units in the West Bank, it also destroys Palestinian homes, continuing to displace the unwanted population. Often, Palestinians receive no explanation for the destruction of their homes. The military arrives, usually giving the family anywhere from 10 minutes to one hour to vacate, and then the caterpillar bulldozers begin their violence. Under Israeli law, Palestinians must obtain building permits from the Israeli government, yet these are rarely granted. Many Palestinians opt to build without the permit and risk demolition. After all, what other choice do they have under occupation? So what happens again is that the military can come through and really destroy any Palestinian home they want to. And Palestinians to rebuild legally, they're supposed to get, I mean, legally under Israeli uh, occupation law, they have to get uh, permission from the Israeli government to rebuild their home. But Israel almost never gives that permission. So Palestinians then have to build illegally knowing that by building illegally, Israel can come through and destroy their home at any time. Uh, and you remember the, the statistic I gave you before, from 1967 until 1973, uh, right after the, um, Israel took the West Bank, 27,000 Palestinian homes were destroyed. Questions so far? Nazi-held occupied areas 
-hmm. except that was on a much bigger scale, obviously, mm -hmm. just geographically. But it's just like, it just strikes me as being, it's like an abuser who abuses, mm -hmm. person who abuses, and does the same thing. Yep. Yeah, I mean, there. Yeah, go ahead. So if we have someone who was pro Israeli, and how would that person attempt to justify these same kinds of actions that are obviously planned and allowed and supported by the Israeli government? When I posted this image on Facebook uh, back in 2012, um, Someone who would, who would uh, claim to be pro-Israel, again, some of those labels are problematic, but who claim to be pro-Israel said that the only reason Israel would have done this then is that the family was clearly hiding weapons from Hamas. That, that's the only reason Israel would destroy a house or raid homes in the middle of the night is that they're looking for weapons from Hamas. Now, I was there and I walked through the stones and I can tell you there were no weapons from Hamas. What, the reason why is because there's a settlement 100 feet away. That's why that home was destroyed. Um, but that's part of the rationalization that will happen is that, I mean, it, consistently I've heard the IDF referred to as the most ethical army in the world. It's a joke. I mean, it's an absolute joke. Uh, this, this stuff is not ethical. But that's the, per that's the narrative that is kept alive. This is the most ethical army in the world. Um, and, uh, and that there must have been some kind of weapons underneath here. Or to say, you know, that um, Clearly, the people whose homes were invaded uh, were in some kind of violation of law, but the military's not at liberty to tell us, tell everyone who's in violation. They can't just tell the public about this. So it's going to look like the soldiers are just invading the homes of civilians who are innocent, but in reality, there's more to it. We just can't know. There's all kinds of ways of trying to rationalize around this. Um, but I, I, don't understand, I don't understand how people are really able to do that, and so it's, very, it's hard for me to kind of articulate well those those particular reasons. But I do see folks really reaching for some kind of rational argument about why, in the middle of winter, Israel would put an eight-person family out of a home. It's just different versions of the same thing. Mm. Obviously, how we treat Native Americans, yep. so, so forth, so forth. Yeah. You, you have a narrative, you, you go with that, you say, it's, it's ostensibly because of this, yeah, once you get a narrative, you start trying to make sense of the world through that particular narrative, rather than sort of observing the world and allowing your narrative to grow and be nuanced as you observe the world around you. It's what we often do with our theology. <laughs> we get our theological narrative, the world has to work this way because that's the way that the Bible says it works. Therefore, anything that doesn't fit that, I will ignore or rationalize away. It's the same sort of practice. Some other images for you. This is the, a street called Shuhada Street. Um, Palestinians call it Apartheid Street. This is why the book is called Letters from Apartheid Street. This street, let me show you on the map. Uh, this is what you see in red. So um, for a long time, this was the major Palestinian street through Hebron. Uh, it had markets, people lived on this street, very busy, um, very crowded. But in 2003, the Israeli military shut it down to Palestinians, said no Palestinian is now allowed to use this street. It is only for the settlers to, to allow the settlers from Tel Ramada, Hadassah, Romano, and Avraham Avinu to be able to walk through here and access the Ibrahimi Mosque and what's called the Gutnik <coughs> Settler Center, which is a little center right here that's, um, I don't know, it's kind of like um, a club almost. It's, it's got, you know, Wi-Fi there and uh, a little cafe. And it's a place just for the settlers to use. Palestinians can't use it. And so they wanted a street that allowed the settlers to get to their synagogue at, here at the, uh, at the Cave of Machpelah and to the Gutnik Settler Center. 
um, without encountering any Palestinians. So they barred all Palestinians from using um, that road. So um, what you've got then is that this is what the street looks like now. All of these homes have been welded shut by the Israeli army. And these are also shops. They've all been welded shut um, so that Palestinians can no longer use them. They've had to, uh, to build exits out of the top of their houses often and build stairwells down into the major part of the old city. Because to go back to this map, these houses all were along here and opened up onto the street. But since they can't exit here, they've had to kind of uh, they've had to build their exits to go into the old cities in order to be able to exit. Now, what you'll see here is you can't really tell, but it's, it's an Islamic cemetery. It's a very big cemetery, and it's where most of the people of Hebron, especially in this area, will bury their loved ones. But because Palestinians can't walk across this street, they can't go visit their loved ones by walking across that street, which should take, I mean, the street width is half the size of this room. Okay, that's how wide that street is. So you can look out onto this, but you can't walk across there. Instead, you have to go out of the, uh, the back exit, down the stairs, into the old city, out of the old city through a checkpoint over here, and around this hilltop to come back in on the H1 side to come down here. A trip of probably 30 to 40 minutes, depending on how long the soldiers make you wait at the checkpoint. Whereas you should just be able to walk across this room. But they're not allowed to use it. It's a, they'll be arrested. Some could be shot on sight, uh, probably by settlers rather than soldiers. It's, un, it's, it's unlikely, it's not unheard of, but it's unlikely that a soldier would shoot a Palestinian for just crossing the street, but a settler could do that. I've seen settlers attack Palestinians with rocks, trying to beat them in the head um, for walking across here. One of the leaders of this settler group has a plaque inside his house that says, have you killed an Arab today? And the center, the settler center here, when I was there, if you, try, if you stood beside it and tried to log onto the Wi-Fi, to use their internet. Uh, at the beginning of my time there in January and February, the, pa the name of the Wi-Fi, like here it might be, you know, Otter Creek, the name of their Wi-Fi was Death to Palestine. That's what you had to log into to use their internet. Then in the middle of my time there, it changed, thank goodness. But what did it change to? Changed to kill Isa Amro, who's the name of a Palestinian human rights activist who lives here. Kill him. That's their Wi-Fi. Extremism is not just a Palestinian phenomenon. So that, that's the soldier's picture I was going to show you earlier. Let me get back here. So here, hopefully this picture kind of hits you in a strange way. This is probably not what you think it is. This is a Palestinian house that the Palestinians have had to vacate because they can no longer exit and they've been forced out through intimidation. And so the settlers, in order to uh, identify it as a home now for Jews, have spray painted the Star of David on it. Now, if I make that black and white, what does that remind you of? This is, Shuhada Street comes up here, Tel is up here, and it winds down here. And so if I'm standing here taking the picture, if I turn here, that's the Ibrahimi Mosque. That's where we are. Settler Center's here, Ibrahimi Mosque is there. So, um, as you walk through, you can see this main part of the road, the street, is only allowed for these two uh, Jewish settlers to walk down, whereas the Palestinian family has to walk on the sidewalk. And to get to the Palestinian area over here, they can cross the street, but only when there's a soldier on duty to make sure they don't do anything. Here's another image. This is after Friday prayers. You can see the soldiers making sure no one is using the street and the Palestinians walking on this dirt sidewalk up here to be able to cross. This is why the Palestinians have a, have a uh, stone that says, Welcome to Apartheid Street, at the very beginning of it. 
Remember, apartheid means separateness. At the, uh, I wish I'd put more maps in here so I didn't have to keep going back, I'm sorry. At the top of this street right here, where H1 becomes H2, there's a checkpoint. That's where we are with this picture. Uh, Palestinian school children who live on just uh, above Shuhada Street on the hill of Tel Rameda, they have to walk down onto Shuhada Street and out of this uh, checkpoint in order to go out into the H1 area and go to school. So they have to cross through this checkpoint every single day. Um, and this, this is them crossing back through at the end of the day. And I happened to be on duty that day kind of monitoring to make sure nothing uh, terrible was happening. And this soldier decided he needed to search the school bag of this little girl who's, I don't know, six, seven, uh, which under international law is actually illegal. You're not allowed to search the belongings of school children. But that didn't matter, of course. So he searches this girl's pink little bag. And when, after he did that and gave it back to her, I walked up to him and I said, why? Why are you searching that girl's bag? And he said, anyone could be a terrorist. She could have been carrying a knife. That very same day, I took this picture, a picture of a young settler boy carrying a rifle walking down the street. Or this picture of a settler family out for a little stroll, and he's got an AR-15 strapped to his back, pushing a stroller. But you're worried about the knife in the schoolgirl's bag. I mean, I don't even need to interpret this for you. It should be, it should just sort of hit us right at our chest, right? This is a sign in a Palestinian house. It says, caution, this was taken by Israel. You're now entering apartheid. On that same street, this is a Jewish sign that says, these buildings were constructed on land purchased by the Hebron Jewish community in 1807. This land was stolen by Arabs following the murder of 67 Jews in 1929. We demand justice return our property to us. So it gives you a sense of those competing narratives for Palestinians, their city is now occupied. For Jews who are living in Hebron, it's now liberated. That's the way that they talked about the old city in Jerusalem as well. When, when Israel conquered the land in 67, for, uh, for Israel, it was the liberation of Jerusalem. For Palestinians, it was the occupied, uh, occupation of Jerusalem. I've got a couple of minutes. I was going to read you a couple other stories, but I'm going to pass. I've got three minutes, and I'll answer your questions. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of tunnels in Gaza. Is, was it in Gaza? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Did you have more about well, that? I was just, I didn't know if it was West Bank, like this area we were talking No, about. I'm not aware of any tunnels trying to be built in Hebron. Okay. No. That was mainly, I mean, the, one of the last operations Israel did in there, they said one of the things they were doing was going to destroy Hamas's tunnels into Israel to prevent attacks. Um, I mean, there's a part of me, I was telling Brittany on the way down here, that I, I was trying to find some kind of story of hope. I've got a couple of stories of great Palestinian nonviolent resistance and some really humanizing encounters with Israeli soldiers that I really thought I would leave you all with. But I decided that uh, we need to resist a little bit our need to constantly be looking for some kind of balm to put over this. And we need to sit with how uncomfortable this is for a little while. And so I have no intention of trying to give you any hope at the end of this class right now. <laughs> I want you all to feel really uncomfortable with these stories. Um, yes, yeah, so we have a couple of minutes. We'll go here and then here. From Palestinian aggression? That's exactly mm -hmm. right, yeah. So um, you would hear that from IDF, you would hear that from many Israeli sources, and no different than the U.S. does in uh, 
when we're in conflict in the Arab world and searching houses, and we often break into houses that are unrelenting, unwarranted, and I don't consider this a So it, it plays into a cycle, though, right? So. For a soldier to say, I have to invade this house because we're getting aggression from Palestinians, to invade the house is provoking aggression from Palestinians. Certainly. That is why people will do that, is that you'll have a child who's four and five years old, who some of their earliest memories of Israelis will be the soldiers who broke into their house in the middle of the night and locked them in a room. That's unlikely to foster a, a very empathetic disposition for that child growing up. Yeah, for sure. Other things? Yeah. I have no idea. Do you? Um, I know that Palestinians use those images. Like there are a lot of Palestinian uh, nonviolent centers that really draw on the videos from the civil rights movement and the resistance of of, uh, of folks in the U.S. and those in South Africa. Uh, and so there are some who find those parallels. There are others who may not see them as clearly. Um, I have no idea, honestly. I don't know why it's only in English. Um, I suspect it's because the sign is intended to be read by tourists. Tourists, yeah. yep. Last little bit, any other questions? Yep. So um, the demographics on the Israeli side, like are there millennials or some other demographic, younger generations that might have a softened stance compared to the older generations for the Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea what the statistics are in terms of that demographic. I have I've met young um, Israelis who are incredibly radical, who I think would absolutely perpetuate this, and I've met other uh, young Israelis who seem very determined to be the generation that brings about reconciliation. And so, I and I have no idea where that balance is, but I've I've met folks on both sides of that, just like you would here. Yeah, right back there, and then we're out of time. Say it again. Could you tell a, a little color story of the Sefton massacre? The 1929. Of 1929, yeah. The, the, as much as I know about it, there, there were a series of um, kind of uprisings throughout the area in 1929 connected, I think, to the Temple Mount, if I'm correct. Is that the 1929 one? Um, and I can't remember the actual dispute. Dad, jump in if you know the details of this better. Basically, this was a part of the Arab uprising against the waves of immigrants that were coming in. So as more and more Denying Palestinians jobs. There were episodes of violence. And there's no no one is justifying what happened, which is absolutely an important massacre that occurred. but it was not unique. There were so many on both sides. But it was a circumstance as a part of the Arab Palestinian response to the Zionist movement in in the land. And as Michael said, part of the story that's left out, a number of Palestinians came to the aid of and shielded Jewish uh, they weren't settlers at the time. They're neighbors. <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure. Yep. Is this town that operation of the Arab 
I, I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time hearing. This is before. This is so they they really start to uh, work their operations in the late 40s, 46, 47, 48. They start resisting and blowing up British uh, military stuff in 45, 46, and so this is about 20 years earlier. Yeah. We're out of time. Thank you all. For, we'll see you all uh, uh, next week for the last one. Go forth and feel uncomfortable.